When I was at school, we learned Wordsworth's poetry, and I remember this line which used to be thrown at us regularly by the teacher. Full many a flower is born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness in the desert air. And to be honest, as a callow teenager, didn't really get what this was all about. But the power of Wordsworth's idea was brought home to me when I heard the music of Arthur O'Leary for the first time. Here was music that was fresh and attractive. Suddenly I was back in the 19th century, out for a spin in the country, and I was hooked. How come I'd never heard of this composer, Arthur O'Leary, before? Here was a Kerry composer who'd gone to Leipzig, studied with Mendelssohn, knew Robert and Clara Schumann, and had met Franz Liszt. Why had I never heard of his music before? Welcome to the world of Arthur O'Leary, Kerry's castaway composer. Before I was finished my researches, I discovered that there wasn't just one Arthur O'Leary out there waiting to be discovered. There was a whole raft of Irish 19th century piano composers of whom Arthur O'Leary was just one. My starting point was with O'Leary because I'd heard his music, I could look at the scores, and I'd even tried to play some of it. So first I talked to the man who'd brought his music to the public, one Bob Fitzsimons, a doctor and paediatrician based in Kerry, who'd come across the music of Arthur O'Leary in the late 1990s. My name is Bob Fitzsimons, and I first came across Arthur O'Leary when I was researching a local history, a medical subject, um, a character called Francis Crump, who was surgeon in the infirmary in Tralee from 1820 on. As part of my researches in the newspapers, I had uh, my son, who was doing a lot of that at the time, uh, I'd asked him to make a, a note of any musical items that he came across. And he brought home one day uh, a copy of a report in, I think it was um, 1853, of a concert uh, given by Arthur O'Leary. And the paper was very impressed by the, the local genius if you like, making great progress. And I said, when I'm finished working with Crump, I'll then start to look into this particular man and find out, find out more about him. So when his medical researches were done, Bob Fitzsimons got back to the subject of Arthur O'Leary. Arthur O'Leary was born in 1834 and had an early start in his musical education, having been taught by his sister. And by the age of 10, he was a musical prodigy and was spotted by the prominent barrister, Wyndham Gould. Wyndham Gould was on the circuit. He was a barrister on the circuit. So they would visit Tralee for a week or something like that. And I think O'Leary was, was produced before him as an example of a prodigy because um, he would have been nine or ten, really, at that stage. Uh, like that, I think um, Wyndham Gould was suitably impressed not only did he give him a pound, uh, which at the time was a considerable amount of money, he then had a continuing interest in O'Leary's musical development. He arranged for him to, not only for him to go to Dublin, but himself and his older sister, who was, who was uh, teaching him at the time. Wyndham Gould not only supported O'Leary subsequently, but introduced him to Sterndale Bennett, a prominent composer of the time. So he, he was a phenomenal patron to O'Leary, arranged for him to go to Leipzig. I think Wyndham Gould uh, would have known Bennett, uh, or at least went to see Bennett, 
and uh, produced uh, O'Leary, who then satisfied Bennett that he was suitable to go to Leipzig. And then they both headed off on the train across northern Europe uh, in the middle of winter to, um, to Leipzig. Got him settled uh, with a, a local landlady. And soon Arthur O'Leary met the famous composer Felix Mendelssohn at a dinner party. I think he was sitting next to Mendelssohn and Mendelssohn was very enchanted by him. The fact that he was from Ireland because Ireland, uh, Ireland had a particular place in Mendelssohn's affection. And he was particularly uh, taken with uh, Daniel O'Connell's struggles and his imprisonment. Daniel O'Connell, he'd been interested in that. And I think it was proposed that Mendelssohn might visit Dublin in support of O'Connell on one of his visits to England. But uh, I don't think Mendelssohn was was just so taken up during all those uh, trips to, to England with concert performances and... I think he probably had very, he hardly had a moment to himself, I think. So he certainly did have those feelings. Unfortunately, Arthur O'Leary's connection with Felix Mendelssohn was to be short-lived. While O'Leary had enrolled in the Leipzig Conservatoire in January 1847, Mendelssohn was dead by the end of that year. And at his funeral at the end of November, O'Leary was one of the pallbearers. O'Leary's studies in Leipzig carried on until 1852 when the committee that oversaw his development recommended that he go to London to the Royal College of Music to complete his studies there. It must have been around that time, on a return visit to Kerry, that a local newspaper reviewed his performance in glowing terms, this being the article that Bob Fitzsimons had discovered in his researches. Arthur O'Leary must have been about 18 years of age at the time. The, the local press were very impressed and they, they were they I think had the feeling that uh, he was going to go places in the world and uh, th- this was just confirmation that he was actually doing so. But tragedy struck in 1854 when his patron Wyndham Gould died and in December of that year O'Leary's studentship ended leaving him on his own. The rest of his life was spent teaching, performing and publishing his music. Because I was attracted to his piano music, I wanted to put it in context, and to do that, I had to talk to Una Hunt, who'd made a lifelong study of this area. My name is Una Hunt. I'm a pianist, and I have a great interest in Irish music, uh, particularly, of course, piano music of the 18th, 19th, and even early 20th century. Um, uh, My interest in Irish music began, oh, a long time ago. I mean almost in childhood. I always wondered why there were no Irish composers. When I'd be playing Beethoven and Brahms and Chopin and all the rest of it um, with my piano teacher, I often asked her, were the Irish composers? And, you know, the answer was kind of always nebulous. Oh, we're not quite sure there aren't many Irish composers. And, and the inference always was, I felt, that if you were an Irish composer, you weren't maybe very good. <laughs> um, and I always find this intriguing. Um, so any time I could ever find any music by Irish composers, I always tried to play it. Um, and then I became very interested in the whole research end of things. What was it like discovering all this music for the first time? Really, really interesting. Sitting in the stacks in the National Library, taking down these these books, uh, like dusty old volumes yeah. of music. Maybe they hadn't been opened in 200 years. It was just incredible to see some of this music, you know. The only composer that I knew anything about at all was Michele Esposito, and he wasn't really Irish, but he did live most of his life in Ireland. The Italian um, composer, pianist, who came and worked in the Royal Irish Academy of Music and set up the great piano school in the Royal Irish Academy of Music. Who then, in Una Hunt's opinion, was the dominant figure in 19th century Irish piano music? John Field is, I think, obviously the towering figure when it comes to piano music you know, by an Irish composer. I think if you get to know Fields music, I think this is the problem for us here in the 21st century. We don't actually know Fields music anymore. If you know Fields music, you will see his fingerprint all over Chopin's music. That's what I think. And 
Chopin himself said that Field was a huge inspiration. But it wasn't just the manner of the, the nocturne. You will actually see little filigree passages and things that, I mean, could have been written by Chopin, actually. But Field was writing before Chopin, remember. Okay. So therefore, he was the originator of this. Now, I think there were two things going against Field. Uh, number one, that if he had been maybe born 20 years, 30 years later, um, he would have been right in the golden age of the piano, especially in Paris in the 1830s, 1840s, you know. Um, he would have been there with the really developing instrument. The instrument was developing so fast at that point mm -hmm. that there were new things coming on, on stream, you know, all the time. Um, so he would have benefited very much from that. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was he was playing on a slightly more primitive instrument, if you know what I mean. But in the early part of the 19th century, the technology of pianos was improving apace and the mechanical instrument described by Una Hunt grew into something that was capable of producing a wonderful singing tone. John Field was quick to exploit the new technology well before others, but they were equally quick to follow his lead. These composers coming along like Chopin and Liszt and all the great composers of the 19th century, I mean, it was that was very much dependent on the instruments that they were playing, you know, okay. and the developing instrument. And it was suddenly possible to do this thing of a singing tone, which really, in the early pianos, they didn't have a singing tone. But in his day, he was absolutely central to piano, you know, teaching and thinking in the early 19th century. And people don't realise that. The other thing that I think is really important about Field is that he lived his entire life in Russia. And he only left Russia for a tour of Europe in the 1830s, I think. Um, he was very sidelined in terms of what was going on. He wasn't in Paris in the middle of all of these things happening. I mean, why did Chopin and Liszt and all these pianists live in Paris? There was a very good reason for it. It was the centre of music at the time, you know. But one piece by John Field has become familiar to generations of piano players, and that's his Nocturne in B-flat.
Field, as I say, was the first person to to write these nocturnes in this style, which was very much a vocal line with an accompaniment in, in the left hand. And sometimes quite a complicated accompaniment. It wasn't the simple little sort of uh, accompaniments that you would have heard in the pre-classical period or even in the classical period. This is where Chopin brought it to a new level, I think, from Field that his accompaniments were even more sophisticated. So much of field you can see in Chopin too. I mean, even details of his harmonic progressions, the little filigree passages that he uses. Um, Chopin was using the same musical language. Before we talk about Arthur O'Leary, I would really like to talk about George Alexander Osborne because Osborne had a really popular piece that he published in 1847 in Paris called La Pluie de Perles, The Shower of Pearls. And this was the territory of Sinding's uh, Rustle of Spring and the Robin's Return and those sort of twiddly little pieces that ladies used to play in the drawing room. This is how he sets it all up. popular in the 19th century and in fact it was so popular even when he he wrote it that there were 40 editions done of it and then in the following year he produces another piece called La Nouvelle Puis de Perles, the new jar of pearls, another little twiddly piece like that but you know what's so interesting about that is that that was written for a market that you know that is not the artist um working away in the garret trying to write great pieces works of art that is for a market that's for a drawing room market very pretty very attractive and very well written but it was very much frowned upon by the intelligentsia of course because it wasn't considered to be highbrow enough for opera for instance if you were living in the countryside and you never got a chance to go to london to see the opera and it was very important that you could actually hear those operas and play those operas in your own drawing room. It was a way of introducing the public 
to that music. And the other very interesting thing about that was that the sheet music of the time also fed into that, being published as transcriptions. Then the young ladies in the drawing room would go along to the music shops and buy these and go home and play them. And they were the very latest thing, you know. It was the pop music of the era. So there was a vast domestic market there for amateur piano players to play arrangements of operas or parlour pieces at home. But musically, was Arthur O'Leary a natural successor to Osborne or did he have a particular musical personality of his own? I think he actually was completely different. And I think the music he was writing and the milieu and all of that was completely different. I think late 19th century, mid to late 19th century music, uh, piano music, was of the ilk of... um, of Stanford, for instance, same thing. It was very much for the the students and for, you know, the the amateur pianist. To get another perspective on O'Leary's music, I spoke to the pianist who'd recorded a CD of his music over 20 years ago. I'm Professor Anthony Byrne here in the Royal Irish Academy of Music. I've been, been a concert pianist for many, many years. I'm a senior lecturer in piano here. And uh, my connection with Arthur O'Leary basically dates back to about 20 years ago, when out of the blue, a man called Bob Fitzsimons from Kerry called me up and asked me would I be interested in recording a CD of Arthur O'Leary's piano music. Now, I had never heard of Arthur O'Leary, I have to admit, but uh, when Bob sent me the scores, I found the music really fascinating, and I was really delighted to be involved in this project. The word that stands out most of all would be charm. I thought there was an, an, a natural charm that permeated right through all the scores. Uh, also, they were very well written. Um, as a pianist, you, you're asked to play repertoire, and sometimes it just falls under the fingers, and often it doesn't fall under the fingers. And that would be true of the great composers, for example. Um, Debussy falls under the fingers fantastically well. Uh, Chopin, a bit more awkward, uh, Schumann very difficult uh, so Arthur Leary's music just it was like putting a glove on your hand it was very natural he, he kind of reminds you of everyone of the period you can hear a bit of Mendelssohn a bit of Schumann a bit of Chopin but there's also touches of Brahms in him just touches of Beethoven as well uh, you get bits and pieces of all the composers in one piece and yet if you were to blindly listen to Arthur Leary you might struggle to identify the composer And that's what makes his music so special. He had a very balanced life, and I think that composing was only a part of that. Perhaps if he was just a composer, his music would have developed in an entirely different way. But one always feels that Arthur simply enjoyed composing, and that is something that permeates through his compositions. When I was practising the Arthur Leary pieces, uh, there was no effort involved. You know, there was no real struggle. There were some tricky bits in the piano writing but by and large it's the kind of music that you could actually practice for a long time and never be bored. He took me through a number of typical Arthur O'Leary piano pieces. The first one was entitled Twilight Shadows. It starts very very pleasantly. So you could you listen to John Field there, it's all very pleasant. And, but the music then takes a few turns, which are really quite special. From here, for example. Beethoven pedaling where he has holds the pedal down for a long he has to pedal here you listen to a piece of music and then suddenly out of nowhere comes something you absolutely did not expect 
And if you go to the end of the piece, Brian, you know, a curious thing about um, these Victorian pieces is that they often offered uh, an easier version of the end of the piece. And um, I mean, listed this as well in some of his later composers, you know. So, for example, the last page of this piece is actually quite tricky to play on the piano. But so Arthur Leary offers you two versions, I suppose the drawing room version and then there's the concert version. Okay, we'll do the drawing room version first. Uh, so it comes from a very dark area in the piano where we're playing in the bass here. kind of reminiscent of the end of the Bersus by Chopin and in a curious way when you do the difficult version it's reminiscent of the end of the Barcarolle by Chopin so we'll play the more difficult version now and you can hear the difference so I go from just maybe two bars So you can hear there's a very different sound world in both of them. Uh, I personally, well, I think both versions are quite beautiful. They're actually quite different harmonically. I asked Anthony Byrne about the Seine Rustique, the piece that I played at the start of the programme, and the one that had whetted my appetite for Arthur O'Leary's piano music. It's such a charming piece and it works uh, as an encore, uh, really. You could have, you know, at the end of your recital, you want to, you're after playing the Hammer Clavier Sonata, and you really don't really feel that the audience is ready for anything else, so you might come in with something like... It's a lovely piece, though. You see, the thing about Arthur Leary, because he, he spent so much time in England, that there's a, there is a kind of an English feeling about his music. Mm-hmm. But I do feel that this is more of a Germanic rustic than an English rustic. Really? <laughs> it just, just for me, it feels a little bit more German, you know. And I think, whereas the uh, Twilight Shadows has a kind of a Victorian English charm about it. Well, I suppose, in a way, you, you could look at the scene rustic in many different ways, but... It could be children playing equally. It could be uh, people out for a jaunty walk. And then again, what speed are you going to play it? So Arthur Leary suggests it's Allegro non troppo. So that's lively, but not too lively. So you could go for the... If you're playing it as an encore, you might go... But that's not really the tempo of the piece, really. It should be much more jaunty. So... And so people are getting ready to go maybe perhaps out on a country uh, ride in their carriage. So they get very excited and they have this lovely little passage here. Now they're going to go into the carriage now. And we're on the Surrey with the fringe on top. and so on 
and it goes on like that and then we go back to playful again and, and, and the piece whole piece ends with um, and this is a lovely thing it ends with it changes the harmonies at the end we're back into the carriage as we're going on our little journey and we're on our way home listening to that on the radio they will have a hard job identifying who the composer is because there's nothing else quite like it I mean those lovely harmonies at the end we didn't see those coming here when we have this part here that's nice isn't it it's actually a perfect miniature really in a way I mean it's perfect from the first notes to the last there's not a wasted note in the whole piece so this is a, this is a man with a lot of fantastic craft for composing and taste and I go back to the, that word again which is the first word I use to describe artillery charm so much charm in this music and then we could let's see a beautiful And I could have spent many hours in such charming company learning this wonderful music firsthand. But what was Anthony Byrne's own take on Arthur O'Leary's piano music? Well, I think the professional side of Arthur O'Leary would certainly have had his eye on the, uh, the drawing, let's call it the drawing room market uh, of popular pieces. So people were, you know, in the olden days you'd go into a shop, a music shop, like we had in the old times we had Maze and... Uh, Nordell Cranes and McCullough Pickett's and, and they'd go in and they'd look through these piano Victorian piano pieces and they'd buy the piece almost by the title you know Moonlight Shadows or Dancing Fairies at the End of the Garden and th- and so yes he certainly would have had an eye uh, on that market but I really do feel that he simply wrote music because he enjoyed writing music and that he he I, don't, I never really feel that he was a professional composer and somebody who needed to write music to make money. I think he wrote music because he enjoyed it. And that's what comes out when you listen to his music. It's the sheer enjoyment of his music. So there it is. Arthur O'Leary as the composer of perfectly performed Victorian parlour pieces for piano. But could you call his style of composing something characteristically Irish or perhaps something more cosmopolitan? Anthony Byrne and Una Hunt differed on this one. First, Una Hunt, did she find his style characteristically Irish? I think his Irish roots are not strong, but he left Ireland very young after all. Maybe maybe the influences weren't there, if okay. you understand what I mean. And he never wrote any transcriptions of Irish airs, even though it was popular, you know? I mean, while I think he does have his own voice... Um, it's still very much drawing room music. It's written yeah. for a purpose, do you know? Yeah. And um, it's not to say that there weren't great composers writing for the drawing room because they were, and in many ways, so was Chopin, by the way, because yeah. the salon was the same thing. Oh, yeah. You know, he was writing drawing room music too. It just happened to be very good. So what would 19th century piano music with a distinctly Irish flavour sound like? Una Hunt showed me. as far as I'm concerned, you do not hear that in mid-European 19th century music. And you wouldn't hear it in Arthur O'Leary's piano music either. On the other hand, Anthony Byrne did find Irish touches in the music. Going back to the uh, scene rustique, you could certainly hear the uh, those 
horse and traps that they have in uh, Killarney going around the lakes. There's definitely a touch of that. And in some of the other pieces and repertoire I played, there's little, little touches of Irish music just there as well. So yes, you can definitely get a sense of Irish music, Irishness about Arthur Leary. Yeah, there's no question about that. Yeah, because yeah, it, 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 and perhaps that's, that is the quality that makes it just that bit different. That it has this Irishness in it. So you, th- you might be thinking you're listening to, Ger- to music composed in Germany or England, but yet every now and again something slips in that makes it just a little bit different. And I think that could be the Irishness in the music. But one always, f- I always felt that there was, I never felt that it was anything other than Irish music. I always felt when I was playing Arthur Leary's music, I'm playing an Irish composer. Uh, is that because there's a little Irish idiom? Is that because there's a bit of an Irish jig or a reel or a, a plaintive Irish song? No, it's just a feeling. That this- Another question that struck me was that for somebody who wrote such well-crafted and popular music, why did O'Leary disappear into the mists of the 19th century? Well, there are a couple of theories. Bob Fitzsimons had an idea that Arthur O'Leary lost out to the Gaelic revival because of a lack of strong Irish identity in his music. He was in the wrong court because of the the Gaelic revival. Uh, He was obviously not of that persuasion musically. And in a way, it was, I think, easy to sideline a whole raft of Irishness, if you like, uh, because it was too associated with Britain. Bob Fitzsimons went so far as to suggest that Radio Erne was actually shy of promoting the work of Irish classical composers, preferring their classical composers to be European. They didn't champion Irish classical music. I think they were possibly afraid to champion Irish classical music in the sense that the the only kind of good classical music didn't come from Ireland. (laughs) So there were three good reasons why Arthur O'Leary, John Field... George Alexander Osborne and the others lost out. Location, timing and the effects of the Gaelic revival. For each of the three people I talked to, Bob Fitzsimons, Anthony Byrne and Una Hunt, it struck me that each of them had committed themselves in a unique way to promoting Arthur O'Leary's music in the 20th and 21st centuries. For Bob Fitzsimons, research on a medical project had led to the discovery of Arthur O'Leary then to the publication of a pamphlet, then to the writing of a book, connecting his career, by the way, with that of Arthur Sullivan, to his issuing of a CD and promoting O'Leary's music in other ways. For Anthony Byrne, that CD project then led to music that he was able to recommend to his pupils as part of their repertoire. And for Una Hunt, O'Leary then became part of her ongoing project to publish Irish 19th century piano music in various forms, including a collection of sheet music. It was interesting that both Una Hunt and Anthony Byrne had recorded the Volseres, and I was curious why this piece had an appeal for both of them. I'd also heard uh, Tony Byrne's uh, CD, which I admired very much, of his piano music, and, you know, listening to that and playing through the music, there was something about the Volseres that really attracted me. And I think... It is coming back to what we were talking about there. It's the lightness of it. You know, it's that French quality that I feel it does possess um, in a way that maybe some of the other music doesn't.
Arthur O'Leary wrote other music besides piano music. There are some songs, of which there are recordings, and some choral pieces in print. But a lot of his music, including a symphony in C minor and a piano concerto, have been lost, despite extensive searches in music libraries by Bob Fitzsimons. Having started his teaching career in 1856, Arthur O'Leary resigned from the Royal Academy in 1903, aged 69, and died on the 11th of March, 1919, at the grand old age of 85. Bob Fitzsimons' final assessment of him is one that involves getting through a bit of historical bias. When you start to look at uh, or to, to listen to Arthur O'Leary, what you have to get over, first of all, is this huge kind of bias against 19th century music, that this is what he wanted to achieve. He wanted, he wanted to be honest and, and creative, uh, artistic, whatever kind of thing. And this was his goal. I don't think he was focused on money particularly, if you were allocating places in a musical pantheon, for instance, he's obviously not going to be at the top of the, the list, but he, if you have somebody who has honest endeavour and is artistic and has a feeling for music, then, uh, to my mind, that's what struck me about Arthur O'Leary. So Bob Fitzsimons' view of Arthur O'Leary is of an honest, upright, hard-working Victorian in the best sense of the word. But for Anthony Byrne, there's something in the music that has a universal appeal. I think there is a place for Arthur O'Leary uh, in listening. There's nothing in Arthur O'Leary's music that wouldn't appeal to any person. It's beauty, it's simplicity, it's charm, it's, uh, it's craftsmanship. Uh, is he one of Ireland's greatest composers? Uh, well, he's certainly an important composer in Ireland, and he is definitely neglected. So you are actually travelling back in time, and you're connecting... With, uh, with a piece of history. And as I often tell the students in the academy, I mean, music and art, that's the best of what we are. And, you know, when, when it's all said and done, you know, when we look back on our culture and our life and our time on this planet, it'll be music and art that will identify what we were. I'd love to think one day that some capsule floating around the universe to be a little piece of Arthur Leary in there as well. <laughs>